Welcome to Cornerstone, where we are seeing lives changed through the truth of God's Word and the love of God's people. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we'll be hearing from our lead pastor, Daniel Ostendorf. Listen in and be encouraged as we spend some time in God's Word together. Well, good morning. It is great to be together, even on a rainy, cloudy day. This morning, uh, I was getting ready to leave about 8.15, and, and my daughter said, Daddy, why are you leaving so early? I said, it's actually not that early. It's just gray and overcast. So thank you for getting out of bed this morning and joining us. There's so much to celebrate this week, from uh, last week's service to celebrating baptisms and, and Brent being here and, and God's calling and leading in this church family to, to welcoming new members and new life in the lanes. We have so much to celebrate God is good, and he is doing great things. You know, we get to celebrate not only what God has done in the past, we get to celebrate what God is doing. And as Peter is reminding us in this letter, we celebrate what God has promised that he will do. This thing that we look forward to in the future that we sang about a few moments ago, I can't wait for eternity to join the song they're already singing, Holy, Holy, Holy Are You Lord. Well, today we're going to be continuing our study of 1 Peter. You might remember it's a letter that was written to Christians finding it incredibly difficult to live and follow Christ, or costly at least, about 25 years after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Peter is in Rome, actually, likely on his own kind of trial and waiting for his own death. And, and he writes to believers not to say, hey, don't do like I did so that you don't end up here. He actually writes to believers to say, if you end up here, Here's how to remain faithful. And remaining faithful may mean that you end up there, but it's worth remaining faithful because we have this living hope we set our eyes on. We had some booklets in the back, so I think there's still some available. If you didn't get one the last few weeks, feel free to grab one. A couple of reasons we're doing that with this with this series. Uh, one, just want somewhere for you to take notes and remember what God's teaching you. But two, for me, it's a good reminder that when this letter came to the churches just under 2,000 years ago, it came much more like this than what we're used to. I think sometimes I take for granted when I open my Bible and I flip through all 66 books to, to find First Peter, I, I kind of think that all Christians always have been able to do that. And I forget that not only have not all Christians always had a, book of 60, a Bible of 66 books to flip through, I forget that actually there's people around the world today that don't have 66 books to flip through. So we live in a blessed age where we do, but sometimes we miss sight of the fact that this came as a letter from someone who loved these Christians dearly and wanted to encourage them in this. Well, we have so much to celebrate, and this was a week of celebration, and actually a week of two really important celebrations. You may think that I'm talking about last week's church service, or you may think that I'm talking about yesterday's coronation of King Charles. No, there were two much more important celebrations that happened this week. May the 4th and Cinco de Mayo. I mean, let's just be honest. There, there is nothing more important. No, actually, they're not that important. But as a culture, we love them because they are moments to laugh and to be silly. So I wanted to share with you, being that uh, we spent some time in England, uh, the London Underground, their subway, posted this at one of their stops on May the 4th, the unofficial holiday for Star Wars. May the force be with you on May the 4th, and also every day. May you rise like a Skywalker with a new hope and let no empire stand in your way. Or may the, on May the 5th, don't be a Darth or a Sith. For every dark side, see a ray of light. Happy Star Wars Day to every human, alien, Wookiee, droid, and Ewok. May every rebel have a great Jedi night. 
P.S., in all seriousness, if you're a Mandalorian and you're looking for trains, this is the way. All right, so we laugh at that. I've lost half of you because you've never watched Star Wars and you couldn't care less. And I've gained the other half who have never heard a Star Wars joke in church. Um, But what's interesting about this is is we laugh at it and we resonate with it, not just simply because it's fun, but because it speaks to things that touch our heart. Check out this third line. May you rise like a Skywalker with a new hope. The truth is, church, we live in a world desperately in need of hope. Dr. Graham, and I just lost my place, Dr. Carol Graham, a senior scientist of the Gallup organization, published an article last month in The Atlantic entitled The New Science of Hope. Dr. Graham recently noted research from the CDC that came out this last year that one out of every two teenagers in the United States feel persistently sad or hopeless, and one out of four seriously considered suicide in the last year alone. To bring this home to us, I talked with someone after the last service who today is having lunch with a teenager who this is their struggle. They considered suicide this year. That's how hopeless they are. Graham defined hope, this thing that she's hoping that she can get to these people to to save them, to pull our, our, our teens out of this persistent sadness and hopelessness. She defined hope as the belief that an individual can make things better. Okay, I'm not quite behind that, but let's see where you go as an author. She raises two what I think are key questions. One, what can our society do to encourage hope and combat despair? And two, how can individuals and communities become more hopeful? All right, I'm a little more optimistic at this point. Those are great questions. What do we do? I mean, this is in the Atlantic, so it's widely published. Let's see. Unfortunately, my hope that we might have some good answers here quickly were dashed. The author says there's three ways to create hope through family stability, through education and opportunity. Now, for this author, if you recognize in all three of those, hope is in us, that we'll figure out stable families, that we'll just get more education, that we'll get just more opportunity, and then all of those problems will be solved. The problem is I'm not nearly so hopeful. One out of every two marriages in our culture end in divorce. Quick side note that I will make, because we get beaten up with this all the time, that is not true of the church. You will hear that statistic said, Christians divorce at the same rate. They don't. The research shows that somebody who goes to church at least once a month and actually holds core Christian beliefs, those statistics are radically different. So don't let the evil one or our culture beat you up. You guys are no better than us. We actually are, not because we're better, but because of Christ in us. So anyway, so I don't think stable families is something our church, our culture is going to figure out. Uh, I also believe that we live in the age of the greatest education opportunities of any generation before us. And we live in an age of more opportunity than any generation before us. So I have a hard time buying Dr. Graham's argument that we just need more education or more opportunities or stable families, and we're going to find that in us. I think that falls short. I think it falls far short. And I think the very hope she wants to give people, she's going to find that at the end of the day, it's fell flat and they're still hopeless. But church, that's why we're here. That's the great news of the gospel. We have a hope that isn't dependent on us. We have a hope that isn't dependent on education or opportunities or figuring this life out. We have a hope that's dependent on Jesus Christ, on what God has done in and through him, not only for us, but for the entire world. And as Peter is making clear in this letter, that's why we're here. We're ambassadors of this message of hope. This living hope that we have is a hope the world desperately needs. The great news that God, not us, has caused us to be born again to a living hope and inheritance that we will receive in heaven and that changes how we live life. That's the hope that these teens need. 
That's the hope that we need, that our world needs. So as we get ready to dive into what Peter says, will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for not only the chance to come together to open your word despite the weather. Thank you for cars that keep us dry, that that we're not walking as many brothers and sisters are around the world, though they walk through mud and rain to worship you and to hear about you. Thank you for this building that keeps us dry as we worship. But Lord, above all those things, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter that Peter, in, his, in obedience to you, wrote to these Christians over, just under 2,000 years ago to encourage them to remain faithful. Father, we ask that as we open your word and we study it, would you use the truths of your word to help us continue to remain faithful ambassadors of the living hope we have in you. Pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right. So if you've got either your Bible or, or the journal or whatever, let's turn to 1 Peter 1, through, uh, verse 13, starting in verse 13 through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It's an incredible passage that we'll unpack, but I want to start with this. This last weekend after the service, a young man in our congregation came up to me and said, I did it, I did it, I did it. I'm like, okay, well, I wonder what you did. Like, did you hit your sister? Like, what are you so excited about? And he said, I did it. I memorized the passage. And this young man who's not even in the upper classes of our elementary began to recite 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 to me, that we challenged our church to commit to memory. He had it memorized by Tuesday, and I still didn't have it memorized by last Sunday. So it was a little bit of a humbling moment, to be honest. But it was so good for me. And as we start this passage in verse 13, the therefore is there to point us back to the truths of 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, when when Peter writes, therefore, and calls us to action, he calls us out of these truths. It's pointing us to the foundational truths we spoke about last time, that God has caused us to be born again, and he's guarding this inheritance for us in heaven. And Peter, lest we miss that that's a core piece, actually bookends the section we're looking at today with the word hope. Verse 13, set your eyes fully on this hope. Verse 21, that's where we end. (laughs) Um, And that God would establish you in faith and in hope in him. Hope is core and central to our life as Christ followers. But our hope must be in Christ and the God who raised him from the dead. Not in education, not in anything else of this world or ourselves. 
Okay, so maybe you notice that hope is there. Maybe the other thing you notice is that this is a uniquely different passage than last week. Last week, we got a lot of truths. We got truths of what God has done. God has caused us to be born again. God is uh, watching over our inheritance for us. God is guarding our faith. God has done all these things. This week's much different. Now we're being called to do things. Prepare your mind. Be sober-minded. Um, set your hope fully, right? These are the imperatives, the calls to action. And what I don't want us to miss is Peter is actually modeling an incredibly core truth of the Christian faith for us here in the way he does this. He starts with the things that are true. These things that are true are not true because we've done them. They are not true because we've done anything. These things are true because God has done them. God has caused us to be born again as we believe in Christ. That is a cause that cannot be uncaused, undone. And then as a result of this, we flow into right action. And church, when we get these things backwards, when we think our actions lead to these truths, we're in trouble. Because no longer is it about what God has done and what Christ has done for us. It now becomes all about what we do. And do we get it right? And if we get it right, then maybe we get to heaven and God says, all right, you're saved. You got it. No. Peter makes it really clear that's not what's happening here. Peter says, no, on these truths, these therefores, now live rightly. That changes the whole game. But church, how often do we get those two things backwards? So we start with the things that are true and we live out of those. And guess what? When this living doesn't go the way we know it should, that doesn't change the truths over here because these existed well before this. So when we live and we struggle to live, we stand on the truths that were there and remain. We stand on the truths of God's grace, his unmerited favor, which we've done nothing to deserve. That's where Christianity stands. So it's really important that before we begin talking about what it means to follow Christ, the focus of today and much of the rest of this letter, that we don't miss that we have to start with what Christ has already done for us. So don't miss that. Otherwise, you, you start to interpret all of these things poorly and wrongly, and we start to put burdens on ourselves we aren't meant to carry. To talk about doing things for God to earn salvation is legalism and a works-based righteousness. So the foundation for this week is the truth of last week of what God has already done. And so now Peter, standing on that, turns to living for God as his children. I, I love the familial language in this passage. We get to call him father and he calls us children. This is a family that God has brought us into. So before we look at, at what uh, Peter is saying about what it looks like to live, there are two things I want to address. There's two words in this passage that in my experience become roadblocks. They become hurdles. They're, they're those words that we hear and we automatically tune out. That for whatever reason, because of our culture and our time, uh, we can't get past those, and so we start to shut down. And it could be that when I read the passage a few minutes ago, you heard one of these words, and you started to tune out. Because you don't like these words. Or you've seen these words, and they've been abused in your spiritual walk with the Lord, or you've seen the church abuse them. The two words are this, holy, in verse 15 and 16, and the word fear in verse 17. And calling us to be holy in verses 15 and 16, as God is holy, Peter is using the language of the Old Testament that God has call, called his people out of the nations. He set them apart, and set apart is what holy means. Holy is not perfect, which is where we tend to go. God, how am I going to be perfect? You've asked me to be perfect. There's no way I can be perfect. And that's not what holy means, although we know our God is a holy and perfect God in that way. Holy means set apart. 
God has called us to be different from the world around us. So a moment of confession, in a little bit I'm going to talk about the importance of reading the Bible, and I feel like I should start with a confession. I'm currently at least 12 days behind on my yearly Bible reading, maybe closer to 14. So a note of encouragement. If you've fallen behind, uh, often it's easy to give up. Don't give up. Uh, keep reading. Maybe it's half a day today. Maybe it's a whole day today. There will come a day where you can do two days at a time, and you can slowly catch up. So don't give up. It's worth doing. But anyways, confession, I'm behind nearly two weeks. But in God's goodness, in being behind, he was sweet. Because guess where this week's reading that should have happened two weeks ago had me? Had me in Leviticus 19 and 20. If you know anything about Leviticus 19 and 20, uh, it's all about God's holiness and his call for us to be holy. So let me share a little bit with you about what I read this week. In Leviticus 19, from, um, God is giving his people through Moses directions on honoring mother and father, on keeping the Sabbath, on not worshiping idols. You should be in your mind thinking about the Ten Commandments. That's what he's saying. Hey, these Ten Commandments I gave you back in Exodus, that's part of what means to be set apart, to live differently uh, as a result of being my people. And so at the beginning of Leviticus 19 and verses 1 through 2, God says this to Moses. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, set apart, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, or set apart, completely other than all the other gods, the, the other things that are worshipped as God. The writer of Leviticus then, at the end of chapter 20, goes on to tell us that God says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you to set apart, separate you from the peoples, that you should be mine. You see, church, we live differently in this world, not because God's putting a burden on us, but because God's called us out. God separate us from the rest of this world. He says, you are my children. Walk in a do in a different way. Don't walk in the way of the cultures around you. So God has called us and he has chosen us. That's what it means to be holy as he is holy. A dear brother reminded me this week of an older praise chorus I used to sing as a kid, Refiner's Fire. And in that song, there's this great line, Refiner's Fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. That's what God wants our hearts to be. We're to be set apart because we follow a different master. We are not the masters of our own fate, nor are we slaves to the things of this world. In verse 15, God has called us out as his people. And even as we live in this world as foreigners, as exiles, as aliens, as strangers, that, that phrase we got all the way back at verse 1 and, and gets picked back up in 17, we live in this world in a different way. We're not meant to assimilate. We're not meant to look like the world around us. We're meant to look like God's people. And so we live according to a different code of conduct. Conduct comes up at least twice in this passage. That we live differently because these things are true, because we are called to be holy, set apart in a different way. All right, in verse 17, we get the word fear, and we get this. You are to, we are to conduct ourselves with fear. We have a hard time with this word, I think, in our modern world. I, I think for different reasons. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think some of us have, have seen fear used poorly by parents and by bosses to, to kind of force us into doing the right thing. It, it's not a loving fear. It's a, a threat of violence. But we also, if we're honest, are, are a, a culture that's enamored with fear. How many movies come out every month that are, that are horror-based, that are suspense-based, that are thriller-based, and the whole core behind them is to make you scared? Guess what? We have an enemy who wants us to be fearful. 
not only of this world and of each other, but an enemy wants us to be fearful of God. And so it's no surprise that we have become, come to distort the idea of a healthy fear of God. But this idea of what fear means, we can only have a healthy sense of what godly fear is if we remember this. God has caused us to be born again. We are saved. He is guarding this inheritance in heaven for us. So regardless of what happens, this doesn't change. And so the fear that we have is not a fear of, I might lose my salvation. Maybe if I, I don't do what's right, if I, if I don't live up to this expectation of what God has for me or others, ah, that could be undone. Do you remember the truth here is that this cause thing can never be uncaused? That, that you can never do something that God would take away your salvation. That's not scripture and that's not God's love. And, and so the fear that we have of God is not a fear that God might somehow remove this thing from us. That's not what scripture says. Uh, the fear we have is the fear of a father who loves us so much that he might discipline us if we're going astray. If you look at the context here, the context here is conduct in this passage. The context is not salvation. And, and so we do what's right out of a healthy fear of our father. Do you see that in this, in this sentence as well, or this verse? And you see, the truth is that God is a loving, steadfast, faithful Heavenly Father, in verse, what was that, verse 3, right, who um, in his great mercy and his abounding love, who judges impartially. The writer of Hebrews reminds us what it means to be under this Heavenly Father in referring back to Proverbs 3. He says this, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? You see, church, we fear God's discipline. We don't fear God. We do what's right because we know that if we don't, he loves us enough to call us back to that which is right. And, and this God who has done abundantly more for us than we can ever ask or imagine is a God we don't want to have to do that in our life because we live out of what he's done in worship of him. And so this is not a fear of a heavy-handed God. We are not in the hands of a wrathful God here. This is the fear of a loving Father who will call us back if we walk in, in a way not in accordance with his will. Well, this idea of living as one set apart, as a child of God who seeks to do what is right to avoid God's discipline is not an easy task. Believe me, if anyone knew that, Peter knew that. If you know the slip-ups of Peter's life, he got it. This was not an easy thing. And so in verse 13, and that's where we're going to focus for most of the rest of the day, he gives us three ways to live according to the way that God's called us as holy children um, of a heavenly father. The three things are this, to prepare our minds, to be sober-minded, and to fix our hope on Jesus Christ. You might ask, well, why these three things? It's true, the Bible gives us lots of other things that would help us in walking faithfully with Christ. I think Peter gives us these three because these three are essential. If we get these three right, the others will kind of follow and come along. So let's take a look. Prepare our minds. Now, prepare our minds here is really kind of, um, the translators kind of prettied it up for us or changed it. It's literally to gird your loins. Now, how many of you this last week looked at a, a colleague or said, gird your loins? Like, we just don't use this phrase, right? This isn't something that we use in our common vernacular. But literally, what, what it's saying here is, is as a runner or an athlete or a worker or a soldier would take their tunic, so their tunic would go all the way down their knees, would pull it up between their legs to their waist and tie it with their belt, that's what you need to do with your mind. 
That, that you prepare your minds to live in such a way that you are ready to respond at any moment to, to the temptations that face you or, or the doubts or the fears or the half-truths. That you have prepared your mind in such a way that you are ready to live for God, to respond to things that are inaccurate. So prepare your minds for action. That's what he's getting at here. Uh, the other thing to note here is Peter's warning to not fall back into your former ignorance in verse 14 or even the indication in verse 18 of the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. There's something here that, that I want to address because I think this happens a lot in American Christianity. We feel like these things, okay, we know these things are true. I accepted Jesus. I've been saved. I am a child of him. And then we find ourselves over here doing things that we know we shouldn't do. And all of a sudden we start to question this. Oh man, like if, if I'm doing those things I shouldn't do, maybe this isn't true. Maybe I wasn't really saved. Maybe, maybe I didn't really believe in Jesus. Maybe I somehow in my youth and in my naivete got it wrong. It's not God's fault. It's, it's my fault. And we start to question because we're doing things that are wrong, the things that God's done that are secure. And what I love about what Peter says here is, no, 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 church. These things are true. God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. God has secured your place in heaven. God is guarding you as you walk with him. But guess what, Peter says? You still can fall prey to the pressures of your former life, the passions of the things you used to do. You can still, even though these things are true, be conformed back to the sin that had you in its grips. Yes, you can still fall to the pressures of the feudal ways of your forefathers, the, the pressures of the culture around us. So, fellow believer, I want you to know if you're in that place and, and somehow the evil one has you where you're making poor choices and the evil one's just heaped on that, the doubt, well, maybe, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I didn't get it right. Maybe, maybe I didn't say the prayer, the prayer quite right. Maybe I, I didn't really sincerely believe it. I want you as a believer to come back and stand on the truth of 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. That when you believed in the name of Jesus, God caused you to be born again to new life. And yes, you have found yourself slipping into a former way of life, but that does not change the reality of what God has done. So we prepare our minds by remembering the truths of God's word. We meditate on God's word because God's word, as Paul reminds us in Romans 12, will transform and renew our minds. That we might, as he goes on to say, discern what is the will of God. So I want to give you my top three recommendations. These are no by, no, by no means exhaustive of how we can prepare our minds, gird up our loins, as it were, uh, to be able to walk in faithfulness. So here's my three recommendations. One, be in God's word daily. Whether you read it, you listen to it in the car, or on your commute, or while you walk around your neighborhood, make sure that you're in God's word each and every day. You know, we live in an age that's rich with opportunity. We are people without excuse. We have probably multiple Bibles in our house. We have phones that can download free Bibles and audio Bibles. There's podcasts and there's emails. Church, there is no excuse for the Bible to not be a part of our day every day. And yet, so often, if I'm honest, I get distracted by my to-do list, by the things I want to do, by the, the show I want to watch, by the thing I want to listen to, and I find myself crawling into bed having done nothing that day to hear the Word of God. And it's not because I didn't have opportunity, it's because I made choices that kept it out of my day. Early 20th century American evangelist R.A. Torrey once said this, he says, we live in a day in which false doctrine abounds on every hand. And the only Christian who is safe from being led into error is the one who studies his Bible for himself daily. Church, we need to be in God's word daily. 
And not that, here's my second recommendation. Not only do we need to be in God's word daily, but we need to carry God's word with us. It's important for us to commit God's word to memory because when you're in the moment and there's a temptation that rears its ugly head or, or at work you're given a, a moment, a, a opportunity to compromise your integrity, you don't have time to say, hey, can you give me 30 minutes to do a word study on that? I need to figure out if that's the thing I should do or not do. No, you need God's word that the scripture promises the Holy Spirit will bring to mind if we've hidden in our heart in that moment to make a decision that shows that you're set apart by God. And so we need to commit our God's word to memory. There's lots of ways to do this. Um, as a kid, my parents had the topical memory system from Navigators. It's actually still out there. It's now an app. It's 60 verses that if you commit these to memory, uh, they have served me so well in life as a foundation for making choices and faithfully following our Savior. But there's other ways to do it. Our encouragement to you is to take one of these cards and memorize 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Figure out some way to get God's word into your heart and into your mind. Yet again, we are with an age without excuse in doing this. You know, we have our very own Jeremy Good who sets scripture word for word to music. He just set all of Romans 12 to music for his kids so they could memorize it. We live in an age of artists like Shane and Shane who take God's word word for word and set it to music. There are countless tools at our disposal to hide God's word in our heart. So church, we need to be a people who hide God's word in our heart. And then lastly, my third recommendation to us, uh, be in God's word daily, commit God's word to memory, and then lastly, share God's word with others. There's no way like sharing something with someone else to, to make sure you know what you're talking about. Believe me, I do it every week up here. It's a challenge. If you're like, do I actually know what I'm saying? But there's nothing that will sow God's word deeper in our heart like sharing it with others. And immediately you might go to the formal ways we do this, but I want to give you a glimpse. There are countless informal ways in our days to share God's word with our spouses, with our kids, with our coworkers. So let me give you a couple of examples. I've been trying at night with Hannah, our six, or, sorry, Aaron, our six-year-old, Hannah, our three, four-year-old yesterday, um, kind of sowing the words of God's, the truths of God's word in their heart. And so I'm laying down with Aaron at night and say, Aaron, when do you think God loved you? And maybe like some of us, he says, okay, let me think about that. I think he loved me when I believed in Jesus. Gave me a great opportunity to then say, no, 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 no. God loved you from before the foundations of the world. God loved you when you were still in sin. God loved you before you ever did anything. And I got to plant a seed of God's word in his heart. The other thing that I've been trying to do, because I know that we live in a world who's going to tell my kids, you're not beautiful enough, you're not handsome enough, you don't have this, you're not that, you somehow don't measure up, is to hide the truths of Psalm 139, 14 in their heart. We often will pray it over our kids or use it when we have babies to dedicate, right? For I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But somehow we then go throughout life and we forget those truths. Yeah, they were true of a kid who was 30 days old or three months old as Jonathan was, but somehow we let them slip and they're no longer true of us. The truth is they're true of us. Every single person in this room is fearfully and wonderfully made. And the world will tell you you're not. And they're lying through their teeth because you are. So I've been trying to plant those seeds in my kid's heart as well. And there are lots of other ways. Let me just make another plug for children's ministry since it's their month. Every week we need 15 to 30 volunteers to help teach God's word to our kids. Let me tell you something. These kids are gracious. They don't expect you to have it perfect. They don't expect you to get it right. They just want to hear from you that you're living out God's word and you're sharing it with them. So we have all kinds of ways in our world to share God's word. All right, so three ways to prepare our minds for the life that God has called us to. Being God's word daily, 
carry God's word with us through memorizing it and sharing God's word with others. All right, what's the next thing that Peter points us to? He calls us to be sober-minded. So let's take a look at that really quick. Having prepared your minds, Peter writes, be sober-minded. This phrase borrows from the idea of being intoxicated by alcohol, resulting in confused, uncertain, unclear thinking. Maybe some of you have alcoholics in your family, like my dad's parents who were closet alcoholics. Alcohol leads you to confused, unclear thinking. Maybe you've had those moments in your own life, either before Christ where you drank too much alcohol or, or somewhere along the way where you had one glass of wine too many. Like, ooh, I don't like this feeling. I don't like the feeling of, of being in control, of not thinking clearly. But if we're true, or if we're honest, church, I think many of us as Christians walk through our days with intoxicated minds, minds that aren't clear about who God is, about the gospel, about what he's done. I think, unfortunately, this is where the devil is getting at us like crazy today. It, we are an age with more information than we could ever imagine, with more voices than ever to try to discern through. And some of those voices are teaching us half-truths and half-gospels and false gospels. The place where I've seen this and my heart aches right now is in the area of the gospel. We have seen over the last 10, 15 years, but let's be honest, through the last 2,000 years, attempts to undermine the gospel. When we think about the gospel, you know, maybe you've heard a conversation like this with people. Ah, it's not really about my sin. Uh, the gospel is really about the fact that we're just kind of broken and we don't get along with each other. You know, this, this sort of division we have over race and over politics, well, that's sin. It's a half-truth, but it's not the whole truth. Uh, we see uh, other things like, oh, my sin isn't really that bad. God just loves me anyways, just the way I am. That's a half-truth. And what we're seeing is the gospel beginning to get watered down. And the gospel is no longer about your sin that separates you from God or your sin that separates you from God. It's about other people's sin that kind of breaks all of us, right? And we are forced to not have to deal with our own sin. So we become cloudy in our thinking of the gospel. We no longer are sober-minded. And it's why being God's word is so important. Because as we read that book, as we listen to that podcast, as we watch that sermon, it's really important that we can hear it and know, is this truth? Are they actually presenting the word of God accurately? Or have they somehow distorted it? Well, we're going to see Peter return twice more in this letter to the idea of being sober-minded. So we'll come back to it later. All right. Lastly, Peter calls us to fix our hope on the grace that is to come. The Christians who received this letter were experiencing and would continue to experience for the rest of their lives a, a loss of their homes, their livelihoods, their family, their friends, even their very lives for choosing to follow Christ. You see, living as obedient children who choose God's way over our passions or the pressures of the world, I have bad news, means we will miss out. You're gonna lose out, you're gonna miss out. Life is not gonna be fair. Uh, there was somebody I talked to recently who was looking at different job options and they were really excited about this one until they realized that the expectation would be that they would not be honest with their customers that the bottom line was more important than honesty and integrity. And this Christian had to say, I'm sorry, I can't take it. Even though it would have increased their family salary, it would have had better hours for their family, this Christian had to say, I can't take that job because I no longer live as a holy set-apart one when I do. I live a lot like the world when I do. Church, maybe you, or, or brother and sister, maybe you've reached those moments where if we're not careful, the cost of following Jesus will lead to us being bitter, jealous, frustrated, or envious. Maybe in your life you've seen friends who have gone on to buy big homes or go on those vacations you want to go on, and you've had to make some decisions that have been really hard, and as a result, you've given up those things. 
And yet as you see those people in your life go and do those things, and, and all you see on Instagram is the curated smiles and the excitement of their life, you start to feel bitter. You start to feel frustrated. God, is this the life that you called me to? I'm not ever going to do the fun things. I'm never going to have fun and enjoy myself. We very quickly can find ourselves frustrated and bitter. We begin to question, is it really worth it? We'll begin to compromise. All right, just this once. Man, it's been a really hard season at work, so just this once, we're going to do it. Or, hey God, you know, all these areas over here, I'm, I'm going to live according to your way here, but this one, I actually think my way is better. I don't really like what it costs me to follow you in that area, so I'm going to do that. You know, Peter knows that following Christ is not easy. He knows that following Christ is going to cost us. It's going to cost us the things we see other people chase after. It's, it's going to cost us our families. It's going to cost us our jobs. He knows that. Because he's sitting in Rome ready to be killed. He knows the great cost. And so that's why he says, fix your hope on what is to come. Peter knows that living as an obedient child is no easy thing. And we keep our focus on the thing that is to come as we say goodbye to the things that are here. And Peter, you'll notice, says, don't just think about this on occasion. Don't just sort of think about it once a month or once a week. He says, no, set your hope fully on it. Don't set your hope on that next job, on the, the, the pay raise, on the next educational milestone. Don't set your hope on your spouse or anything the world has to offer. No, set your hope fully on the promises of eternity. As one scholar put it this week, devote every ounce of mental and spiritual and emotional energy focused on this grace that God has for, for us. No, this is not the hope of Jeremy Good. Uh, who's hoping that the Pittsburgh Pirates might actually have a good year this year. They're, they're at the top of their division. It looks possible, but far from certain. No, the hope that we're called to fix our eyes on is certain. This is that hope that in, in the first part of this chapter, uh, Peter tells us is being watched over by God. It is a hope that is certain. It is a hope that will come. It is a hope that if we keep our eyes fixed on it, we do not have to wonder if it will be there at the end of the rainbow. No, we know it is there because God has promises there and he's watching over it. There's a sure and certain hope. So no matter what we miss out on, no matter what we lose out on, no matter what we just simply lose in this life for following Christ, Peter wants us to be clear. It pales in comparison to the things we will lose. Gold and silver, which we don't think of perishing, perish in this passage, and even even earlier in this chapter, because they perish in comparison to the greatness of what God has for us, of this hope, of this future that God holds. Wayne Gruden in his commentary puts it this way. This is not just a hope of great blessings that encourages downcast Christians of what happens when Christ returns, but it also prompts a reordering of priorities according to God's agenda. You see, we live as obedient children here in light of the future, regardless of the cost, because of what God has done for us and what God will do for us and has promised. And so church, as we think about what does it mean to be obedient children, these are the three things that Peter wants us to hear. Prepare your minds for that daily battle of fighting temptation and sin and the pressures of the world. To be sober-minded, clear thinking in the things that matter, especially who God is, what the gospel is, our need for him. And lastly, to fix our hope, not on the things of this world, but on the things that are to come. Church, as we draw to a close, I've got some kind of painful questions for us. How are we doing walking as God's children in this way. Our Heavenly Father who sees everything, who judges impartially, who there's nothing hidden from him, when he looks down at our lives, what does he see? 
When our Savior who gave everything, who died on the cross for us, looks down at our lives, what does he see? Does he see someone driven by the passions and the sins and the desires and the wants of our BC, before Christ life? Do they see someone whose values, decisions, and actions are swayed by the pressures of this world? Do they see someone who's less set apart for him and a whole lot more like the world around them? Or does our Heavenly Father and our Savior look down and see someone who's defined by God's word, set apart as he is holy? If you say, yes, that's me. I I am walking, I am seeking to walk with Christ imperfectly, but that's where I am. I am preparing my mind. I am uh, standing on God's word. Then that is great. And I celebrate with you. Don't give up. Keep fighting the ra- running the race. Keep preparing your mind daily by being God's word. Keep your head sober mind in a world and an enemy who wants it to be cloudy and unclear. And continue to fix your eyes and your hope on Christ. But furthermore, if you are saying, yes, I'm living in that hope, I want you to remember back to the beginning of today's sermon that one out of every two teenagers feel that they are persistently hopeless in this world that one out of four think they want to commit suicide because that would be better than the world they're currently living in. They need you to share the living hope that you have with them. And so today, pray for a brother from our community who's going to sit down with a teenager who tried to commit suicide this last year and try to share the hope of Christ with them. Our world needs the hope that you have. But perhaps this morning you find yourself in this position You've been born again, you know that's true, but somehow through the, the frustrations of life, the, the work of life, the business of life, you found yourself over here conformed back once again to the things of your former life or looking a whole lot more like the world around you. If that's where you find this self this morning, first of all, stand on the truth of what's true. You, you've been born again, you have new life. You've not been walking in it, but you have this. This morning is a great morning for you to confess and say, Lord, I'm so sorry that I gave up and walking in the hard way that you called me to out of worship. I, I'm sorry that I fell back into the passions of my former life before Christ. I'm sorry that I let this world put pressure on me. Confess that to a heavenly father who loves you, whose discipline has always been for your good and to call you back to the world, the life that he wants for you. And then begin to do the things that Peter calls us to do. Be in God's word daily. Commit it to heart. Share it with others. Prepare your mind for the daily battle. Put away and cast off anything in your life that has led to confusion when it comes to the the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of God's word. If there's a podcast you're listening to, if there's a book you're reading, if if there's someone in your life who is a voice that, that clouds your thinking rather than gives you clarity, someone who's always searching for answers but never finding the truth, as Paul writes to Timothy, then spend less time with them. I'm not saying cast them out of your life, but be careful the place you give them in your life because they've clouded your thinking. And lastly, if you've been preoccupied by the things of this world, chasing the the speedboat or or this comfort or that comfort, set your hope fully on the grace to come and count everything as Paul does, rubbish compared to the thing that's waiting for us in heaven. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. For further information about today's podcast or our church in general, please visit us at cornerstonecbc.org. That's cornerstonecbc.org. Thanks. See you next time.